Welcome to Investor Talk Radio, hosted by Kurt Davis. During the show, Kurt will share tips and strategies as well as guest interviews on how you can become a successful real estate investor. Kurt Davis was a former chef for 11 years until one day had the opportunity to take a leap of faith, left cooking, and became a full-time real estate investor. Kurt has been building his personal portfolio of rental property and at the same time has helped over 500 investors around the globe purchase cash-flowing rental properties. He is a licensed realtor who has achieved multi-million dollar club status, and he is also very active in the local real estate investment club. And now, here is your host, Kurt Davis. Another edition of Investor Talk Radio. I'm your host and founder, Kurt Davis, and joining me today all the way from Arizona is Aaron Chapman with Security National Mortgage. Aaron, welcome to the show. Good morning, Kurt. How are you? Man, I'm doing fantastic. You know, I you know, I appreciate you taking your time to uh, jump on this call here with me so I can uh, pick your brain on a few subject topics here that uh, have to do with real estate investing. And before we get to that, though, um, why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, you said uh, you'd indicate I'm from Arizona and I do business all over the country. Um, but when I'm not doing the business thing, I've got uh, got a wife of 20 years. We just passed that 20-year mark. I have four children ranging from 18 to 9. So it does get quite entertaining back at the house. And then to keep that adrenaline rush going, my wife and I volunteer together on a, uh, the local sheriff's department's rescue team. So we get to do high-angle rescue, helicopter rescue, a lot of cool stuff, uh, a lot of off-road rescue, things like that. So it keeps us well uh well entertained to the extent that uh, when we come back to work, your energy is ready to get back into the business. You surely lead a more exciting life than most. Um, I see a lot of exciting lives out there. I feel like I'm trying to keep up with the rest of the world. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. Now, uh, you know, aside from obviously uh, doing all that, um, tell tell the listeners, um, obviously, you know, you're in the mortgage industry. Uh Tell us a little bit about how long you've been in the mortgage industry and, and what's kind of going on. Well, I crawled out of the mines in northern New Mexico when they're shutting down a project in 1997 and stumbled my way into this through a contact and just dug in to try and break the mold of what my family was. A bunch of roughnecks, miners, um, welders, equipment operators, and I broke out all that to try something different. And a lot of tenacity and we stuck with it. So I've been at it just over 18 years. So that so would you agree then that that was probably a significant career change for you? Oh, it's significant. It doesn't even begin to explain it. You know, I had to hack a foot off of my hair, shave, put on something semi-respectable, cleaned a lot of dirt off of me. And uh, it was a big change. You know, being from an outdoor type of, well, I guess it's a matter of perspective, but outdoor. But then when you're underground 700 feet drilling and, and playing with explosives, not quite outdoor anymore. But Going from that to an office environment was a huge just change and evolution for me. And yeah, I mean you've you've uh, you've you've been doing this through the through the crash of two thousand eight two thousand nine as well, correct? Yeah, there's a lot to that story too. I mean, who knows? We may even hit on that a little bit today. But um, yes, we through the crash got to see how the mindset of uh, the market had this massive evolution during that, and it changes a person's. Absolutely. That's probably a whole nother uh, hour long uh, podcast. But um, tell us, uh, you know, I know that you've been doing this for some time. How much of your business right now, Aaron, would you say 
the ratio would be between investor business and retail business? I would say it's, it exceeds 90%. I don't have the, the exact numbers for this year, but I know it exceeds 90% investor business. Uh, there's a different type of conversation you have with a real estate investor versus the person buying their primary residence. Now, it doesn't mean I don't do a lot of primary and a lot of secondary housing type of loans. We do a ton of that, and especially for our real estate investors. We like to help them get to that portfolio of investments they want, then get them into that dream home when they have uh, bought all the, the real estate they want in places that make sense. And then they're able to live in places that they would like to. Now, as long as you now, as long as you've been working with real estate investors, and as long as you've been in the business and knowing where you live, uh, do you or your wife uh, invest, or have you invested in real estate in the past? Oh, we have. In fact, I've been real estate working. I've been investing in real estate since about two thousand one, um, and was working with real estate investors since about that same time. Actually, two thousand three, I got really deep into working with almost exclusively real estate investors. And uh, we had built up a pretty decent little portfolio until 2008. And in 2008, I got in a motorcycle accident that put me in a wheelchair for a little, you know, about a year. And it prevented me from pulling in an income for about a year and a half. So my wife was forced to liquidate everything during that time frame to deal with the extreme medical bills. I mean, it, it came to several million dollars in total expenses there um, from that. And as a result, we had to liquidate things. And when you go through something like that, we, we made a conscious decision that all that would be on my credit and my um, my finances. And then she would be separate from that, even though we were, of course, joint in the marriage. And because of that, in that instant in our life, she her, her uh, situation was preserved. And so she's now real estate investing again. And I'm still trying to clean up that mess. It's amazing how a mess like that just is obliterates you. My credit looked like a nuke went off on it for a while, but we have recovered. And not from a lot of labor and scratching and clawing, but we're 100% square with the world, and um, we're back in the investment game. That's that's fantastic. You know, something like that, in a lot of cases, would destroy somebody for the rest of their life. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you've been able to turn that around within that time to get back into the game. Uh, kind of moving on here a little bit. You know, we've got really there's really only a few questions that I have for you that we're going to kind of discuss here today. But what I'm hoping is that you'll really kind of dig deep into some of these topics. You know, one of the one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Aaron, is what is the typical real estate investor like? What are, you know, you, since you uh, work, obviously, with these investors to get them approved from the financing, tell us uh, a little bit what they're like in general. And I know that uh, you and I are probably looking at kind of like the same sub uh, subcategories here, but just kind of feel free to... Uh, let us know what in, what the, what the typical investors like. Well, I've seen over the years, going backwards to the first part of our conversation about when I started working with the real estate investor back in the early 2000s, there's been an evolution. I've noticed how they have changed in their mindset and they've had to separate themselves. And I don't know if even they even understand they've done this consciously or subconsciously, but there has been this change in the mindset, but especially the very successful real estate investor that um, they have evolved away from the, the herd, if you will. Now, you probably won't argue with me if I tell you we live in a consumer-based economy, right? Correct. You know, last statistics I saw was 72% of the GDP for the United States is based on consumption. So when we think about that fact alone, when there is anybody advertising goods or services, they're going to advertise to who? The consumer, right? Correct. So Correct. they realize that there are large corporations out there, whether it be retail corporations or service corporations, that the majority of their business is based upon 
their price. So they, when they make the price uh, appealing to the masses, they draw the masses in. So with that, the investor is also being looked at as a consumer, as somebody who's spending their money and then going into debt for something. But there's this, uh, this, this change that has happened. There's this realization that it's no longer an expense and it's no longer debt. You know, they're looking at it, and, I, and I've noticed this in conversations with them, there, there's really three ways people buy investment in real estate. The first would be to pay cash. Uh, the second would be partner with somebody. We see that a lot. They've got a friend or a brother or their, their brother-in-law, whoever that might be. They each split it down the middle. So let's just take a $100,000 transaction, for instance. If you bought a $100,000 transaction in, let's say, the Tennessee area, I've run the numbers on this, and you know, with the market rents out there, you can expect an 8.2 to 8.4% return on investment. That's been about the range that I've seen when a person just puts, takes the 100,000 out of their pocket and drops it into, into the closing. Now let's say you split it in half with your brother-in-law. You're putting up 50%, he's putting up 50%. Well, in that, you now have a partnership. With your 50 grand, that gives you half ownership. With his 50 grand, it gives him half ownership. And when you run the numbers on that, with the amount that you invested, that itself is now still an 8.2 to 8.4% return on investment. So you get half ownership, as so does he, half the cash flow, half the risk. But what I've also found is that the brother-in-law or the partner does 100% of the complaining when things don't work. So it's there's some risk associated with that. So the evolution that I've seen um, comes to the point where it's no longer a debt relationship with the bank. The bank is viewed now as a new partner. A partner who's willing to put up as much as 80% of the capital to buy your to, to help you get into this business or expand the business you already have, but they're not demanding 80% of the ownership like your partner would have in a regular partnership arrangement. All they want is say 5% of that 80% in 12 installments every year, and that's it. They don't have any other any other pressure on you. And the really cool thing about that evolution is is the realization that comes when down the road. Let's say it's a 30-year note or a 15-year note or whatever it is down the road when that's paid off and that note is satisfied, your partner's out completely. Not only do they not demand a lot from you, but now they're gone. When that property is worth its most, it's cash flowing at its highest and your business is doing its best, they're gone. And the other really cool aspect of that is the realization that comes when the investor, they didn't spend anything for that. The individuals who lived in those properties, who paid those rents, they paid for it. In reality, the investor's getting everything back that they put, that put into it and, and 10 times, 20 times over, whatever that is. I haven't run that factor yet, but they really got that for free. They were just a holding, in, a holding cell to continue to, to capitalize on that whole thing. So there's, there's that. There's that evolution that has come. There's another kind of thing that has happened just in the last couple of years. And I would say it probably has evolved within myself and those who I work with is that the turnkey real estate investor is a little bit of a different animal. When you're talking about one who wants to invest in real estate in multiple markets, but they want to you know, wear all the hats in their little company. Now, let's talk about their company is, is uh, designed to acquire and control cash flowing real estate assets. That is the basis of their business. And I talk about it as a company because that's how it should be treated as its own operating entity. If they're going to go find real estate in various markets or even in their own market, they've got to wear a lot of hats. They've got to wear the CEO hat, which is the hat making all the decisions, the chief operations officer hat, because that's the one who finds the properties, bets them out, 
hires the various different people to do the job, such as, you know, really an agent to find their properties for them, then property management, property maintenance, all these things. They've got to find all these sub, uh, I guess, have sub jobs within that division, the operations division. Then you have the finance division. Are they going to pay cash? Do they need to get involved with a bank partner? If that's the case, then they need to put on a CFO hat. They've got to interview and they've got to understand whether or not these individuals they're working with can do loans for the real estate investor because it's a, it's a very specialized product. It's not something that you just go into lightly and think you can make, you can make it work. I've got decades of experience in this. And they've got to go through all that and all those steps and try and manage that. So it gets rather in labor intensive to be the, the one individual trying to run all of it. So the turnkey investor has evolved to just the CEO. They're taking the head chair at the board table and they are interacting with individuals that can fill those other seats. And I would argue those who are coming to see you guys there at uh, in Memphis to talk to Kurt Davis and his team, that's your chief operations officer. You've already hired him. They find the properties, they bet them out, they put people in them, they go ahead and put, uh, you know, maintain them, take care of that entire division. Then on the other side, I submit, hey, whether it be myself or another entity that can do real estate investment loans, that could be your chief financial officer. But you need to be sure you interview them well. You don't put a person on the board of a company that doesn't know what they're doing. The advice that they give and the information they provide needs to help further the company and where it's headed. So those places, those positions are in place. They can be in place uh, within the turnkey real estate investor. Now, what, how that changes, and what well, not really changes, how they need to also view that, and how they have viewed it, uh, is there's no real expense for this. That's what's really the coolest part of it is it doesn't cost you anything to put these people on your board. You them as the real estate investor trying to wear all the hats. If they go out into a market. And they have a real find a house that fits, and they have a realtor who sells them that home. Well, how's the realtor get paid, Kurt? What what's the realtor's income on this? Three percent. Yeah, so they're getting a commission, right? Correct. Already baked into the deal, correct? Absolutely. So if a person's buying a home listed by a realtor, he pays market value or less, right? Correct. Typically. So it, in that market value, or, yes. exactly. I mean, there are situations that may not work out that way, but market value or less within that range. The cost to the realtor, I mean, the, the, the pay to the realtor is already baked into the deal. Now, let's flip it over to the, the loan side. Let's say that they start going to different banks. It goes to five, six different banks to find somebody who real under, really understands real estate investing. Now, that, that loan officer they work with gets paid how? When the loan closes. Yep, they get paid by a commission. Correct. The same as yeah. really, it's already baked into the deal. They have an interest rate and they have costs. All banks have interest rates and costs, and the, the person putting together the loan gets paid a commission. So in the same respect, when we talk about this arrangement, let's just say it's you and I working together with the CEO of his little with a, his little investment operation. You're the chief operations officer. I'm the chief financial officer. How do we get paid? Exactly the same way as the realtor would have gotten paid on the other scenario and the loan officer on the other scenario would have gotten paid. But the difference is the real estate investor is not getting the advice or the, the buy-in to his organization the way he does with us on board. So he gets all the expertise of an individual like yourself who's been doing turnkey investment real estate for however long you guys have been doing it and have been doing it extremely well because I work with your clients and I know that I get to hear their their responses. And then there's myself who I've been working with real estate investors and strategy strategizing all this for thousands of them. I've seen where they've done it right and I've seen so that where they've done it wrong. And I can offer that advice as a CFO in a way 
And it all comes to that that new or that real estate investor, their, that CEO of that organization for free. It costs them nothing. And it, it's interesting to hear you kind of talk about it uh, from this type of perspective, Aaron, because, uh, you know, before I heard you, you, you put it this way before, uh, I've never really looked at it before. And, you know, with, with turnkey companies, kind of like what we do, there, there always seems to be kind of like a love hate relationship. Some people either love going through the turnkey process or some people despise it and they would, you know, they, they think that they can do it better on their own. But, you know, I mean, and I'm sure you've seen this because, like I say, a lot of your clients are mostly investors in one state buying from a turnkey provider in another. Uh, there's a there's a huge value that these investors are getting uh, simply by the way you have explained this, and they're not having to pay for that as opposed to having to uh, either make the trip out here or try to vet out different uh, specialist, you know, trying to find a realtor, trying to find a contractor, trying to find a closing attorney, trying to find a property manager. And, you know, everyone thinks that they can do this on their own. And, and there are a, a lot of people that can, but uh, it's, it's a huge risk. And, you know, it's just, we work with so many clients that, you know, they, they have this business, what we do is not for everybody, but for the people who, who are, uh, it, it's a very valuable valuable resource to make it possible for people to invest long distance. Well, and they, they start understanding the law, the law of leverage. Most of the time people talk the law of leverage in financing investment real estate, and they're talking about the loan. Sure. That's definitely a big leverage piece, but what about the leverage of all this expertise we just discussed? No, they only have to vet out one guy, which is you. You vetted out everybody else. And if that trust is there, they can lay their head down on the pillow at night to know that, Hey, I'm working with Kurt Davis. And I know that if things go wrong, I've got him to jump in the middle of all that. And he's boots on the ground. They don't have to fly all the way out to Tennessee to try and square it all up. They've got you out there who comes with an army behind you. All the clientele that you have and that you, the far reaching footprint that you guys have of investors all over the country that come to Tennessee. And when you have, when you're talking about your property management people, your maintenance people, and things aren't working right, you have that power behind you where just the individual real estate investor coming from the other side of the country doesn't have that. They're just an individual, and they can get passed off. I'm not saying that they're not important. I'm just saying that's human nature. So let's leverage in a big way the assets you bring to the table. That's absolutely, absolutely. What, uh, Aaron, what would you say some of the biggest hurdles to overcome with with kind of like turnkey real estate in general? What are some, what are some hurdles that you have seen out there? When you're talking about, I guess it's the some of the newer investors that are starting to get really a feel for it, starting to get their feet wet. They take a very cautious approach um, to many parts of it, and they get really focused on on to some things are they seem really big and consequential at the time, but they're really not in the grand scheme of it. Is because again, it's that whole consumer mindset. They've had it baked into them. We've had huge media giants just shoving into them what should be important when looking at these scenarios. And in reality, it doesn't apply to the real estate investor. So one of it is the cost of the loan is a very high percentage of the property price. That's one of the things. Because I tell people, you know, when it comes to the cost, just budget for five grand. I can't tell you exactly what it'll be to we dig into what market you're going to be in and what property you're getting there. The, the cost can vary a little bit, but budget for that. And so when they see that, and like, whoa, wait a minute. I had one client told me this, like, man, that's like buying a car. You know, I'm, I'm buying a house. It's only 80 grand. When you talk about that chunk of it is cost, that's like going upside down on a car immediately. Well, again, that's the mindset of the consumer being plugged into him. Again, 
So we had to talk a little while. And as I, he and I just spitballed back and forth about that thought, it came to both of us. This is just wasn't something that I presented. He actually kind of extracted it out of me, extracted it out of himself, that he started to look at it as, a, as an annuity in a way. So how that came to him is he's got, he's got this property he's buying, and he's putting down 20%. Then he has this 5000 in cost, not just cost, but it was also taxes and insurance and all these other things. So it's everything that he baked in to close the transaction. So he, he, his mind kind of shifted to, okay, wait a minute. That five grand is gone. It's out the window. Once you spend it, there's no getting that back. He goes, and then I asked the question, what was your cash flow on this property? He goes, well, it's about $230. I said, okay, well, let's just take it this way. Since you're, you're, let's say you're going, coming to me and I said, okay, give me 200, uh, give me $5,000 and I'll give you back 230 a month ongoing. How long is it going to take to make your five grand back? Well, we ran the numbers. It was not very long, 18, 19, 20 months, something to that effect. Correct. Right. Um, he made it. He, the money was coming back. And then it's just cash flow on top of that. I said, so let's look at this. Way. You spend 5000 to get 230 Is that a good deal? Absolutely. Heck yeah, it's a great deal. I said, now let's take the other piece. You put 20% down. That 20% goes in. Let's, think it's go let's consider that's going into a non-liquid account which is a piece of real estate. It's just going into that. It's always there. You can always tap into it, but it's a matter of process to tap into it. That's why it's non-liquid. Let's think about what that money is doing sitting there, just incubating. Then you have an occupant in that home. That's where your 230 is coming from, really, is from that occupant being in the home. But in the meantime, the occupant is also slowly putting money into that non-liquid account for you because of paying down the note. On top of that, the value of the home continues to increase at a very slow incremental rate because you're in a more linear market. So you're seeing small incremental growth year over year, but it's still growing. So 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road, run the numbers. How much is that 20% now? It's incrementally growing at a large amount. You've continued to get $230 a month. You've completely got back your five grand. It's grown for you. Now you also have this non-liquid uh, non account that's just growing in value all the time until you liquidate the asset. Where's the risk? Where's the downside in this? Doesn't sound like much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's downside in everything, but I'm not seeing it there. So when we we're done with that, he's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I didn't think about it that way. He dove right in. So my experience with all these different investors just keeps leading and just brings up more information and more ways to look at things. And it's not a matter of um, trying to convince somebody, just look at the angles. The angles will tell you how good these things can, can be. Now, the other thing that I've seen that has evolved that has come up with their real estate investors, especially your newer ones, is the rates between lenders. They spend a lot of time shopping rates because, again, that's the consumer mindset. You're being told by the uh, by the media that you need to shop price. You're also probably your drunk Uncle Bud at the last uh, family reunion told you about how you should be looking for things. He's, he's the expert. Apparently. Well, you start shopping these rates and you start finding that there's going to be about a quarter percent of rate difference between lenders. That's just pretty natural. That quarter percent, though, seems big because when you look at that, when you're used to seeing these big billboards talking about interest rate and the, the, the commercials that come on. And have you ever heard of the term reticular activator? I have not. A reticular activator is what how they describe what happens to a person when you decide you're going to buy a pink Volkswagen bug. When you do that, and all of a sudden you see pink Volkswagen bugs everywhere, it's just you're activating that part of your mind that you're zeroing in on that. That is so, so by the way. 
And did you notice that when you bought your pink Volkswagen Bug? <laughs> not not pink pink Volkswagen <laughs> Bug, but when I when I think of v- and it really you know the the analogy of the vehicle is so fitting because you know every vehicle that I have ever purchased when I decided I wanted to buy one, uh, all of a sudden they come out of the woodwork and you think that everybody has one. Exactly, and that is it's just the psychology of the human brain kicking in. That's just something about it. There is that, and I, I heard that term back probably 20 years ago, and it stuck with me, a reticular activator term. But so what that does then is now that they're looking for financing, they see it everywhere. They can't throw a stick without bouncing off four or five different things telling them what the rates are. The, and also, we have to consider the rates that are being advertised. They're not being advertised for the investor. They're being advertised for, the, for a consumer buying a primary residence at maximum loan amount, with the uh, maximum amount of cash down, with the highest credit score. I mean, they're going to offer the best they can to draw them in. It's like a movie. You're not going to put a really crappy movie trailer out there, right? You're going to put the best they can in the form of a movie trailer to get butts in the seats. And then when you come in and sit and watch that movie because the trailer looks so awesome, you come to find out the movie stunk. You know, I don't know how many times you've seen a movie where the trailer is better than the movie. You know, more times than I'd like to admit. Exactly. Way too often. But I mean, I'm digressing a bit, but it kind of helps explain these rates when we're talking about that and they finally dig in and start understanding that the rates on real estate investments are not, uh, they're going to be higher, about a point to a point and a half higher than what's advertised. Then you get in and start comparing different lenders. That's when you start seeing that quarter of a percent differential. Then when they start looking at us, say, wait a minute, that's a huge, that's a quarter of a percent. I say, okay, wait a minute, let's, let's look at this price point here. You're buying in the Midwest or in the Mid-South. These price points are fairly low. When you figure out an eighth of a percent difference in rate on many of these price points, it's anywhere from four to six bucks a month. If you're buying a property that can't support a four to six dollar a month difference in cash flow, I think you're buying the wrong property, not so much going with the wrong lender. Absolutely. So that right there in itself is another thing that people need to, uh, they're evolving. They're understanding that you work with the wrong lender that doesn't because they're and you go after them because of price but they don't understand the real estate investor very well and it takes them a month two months longer to close because it's so difficult it's such an integral uh, process that you just lost because you gain anywhere from six to ten dollars a month difference in payment but you lost that cash flow for a month one to two months you could actually stretch out you could lose or at least stretch out your um your um revenue uh low cutting it off by sometimes two years because that difference in payment doesn't anywhere equate the $230-$300 difference in cash flow you could have got if you just closed quicker. So I've seen that happen. I saw one individual have, getting a $300 a month cash flow out of something. It took him two months longer elsewhere. So that's $600 that he missed out on to save 10 Do that. I mean, sit down and do that math and see what happens to your business. Sure. Sure. So, and then one other thing that has come up is, you know, why wouldn't locals just buy these properties for such great prices, right? You know, that's one of the things that um, people just at first have a hard time wrapping their head around that. Why would I come in as an investor, buy these cheaper houses? Is there something wrong? Why won't the locals buy them? Well, we have to get into a lot more of a detailed discussion. A lot of it has to do with with the economy. You know, there was a um, labor secretary under the under Bill Clinton during his first time uh, presidency. Yeah, or I guess his first uh, term, and he did a presentation that referenced what they, he called income disparity. So when we talk about me, the median income 
that is uh, provided out there. And we say we're and we're talking about money that is just coming in a person's paycheck, not adjusted for inflation, just just cash in their account. And we talk about a median income. We got minimum wage, and we got the the guys that are pulling the highest wage possible. Then you find where that median is, what that middle income is. What year would you think is the highest median income over the last fifty years, Kurt? I'd probably have to say somewhere in the seventies. And you're one of the few that's ever even caught that. That because I've talked about this to a lot of people, and it is. It's 1978. We had the highest median income, and from what this presentation was, and as I recall, I'm going off a of memory here. It was about 48,000, and I could be off a little bit. So $48,000 a year for the average, the, the it was the median income for the average, and he said male worker at that time because that was the majority of the workforce. Now, we advanced to the when he gave that presentation. That presentation was done. In fact, let me go backwards just for a second. What the, he talked about the average one percenter in 1978, and they made just over 300,000. So one percent of the population, three hundred thousand. The majority of the population in the median area was about forty-eight, and then on down from there. Then he, he was given this presentation in two thousand eleven, and he brought statistics for two thousand ten because you know the two thousand eleven numbers were not yet. He was still in the middle of two thousand eleven, and he said the median income at that time for the average worker was like thirty-three thousand, somewhere in there. Huge difference, and we're talking dollars in pocket. So the difference there. One, we see the huge difference in income going from 48000 down to thirty-three. But what happened to the cost of living between seventy-eight and 2010, Kurt? It went way up. Okay, so the cost of living has gone way up since the 70s, but we're seeing wages go down. Here's one of the actually interesting points that he brought out. What do you think happened with the one percenter's income from 1978 to 2010? Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess it went way up. He said the average one percenter, 2000, it was in 1978, 300,000, 2010, 1.1 million, thereabouts. Huge difference. So we got this big shift. And the reason we start talking about that, that the cost of living is so high for somebody who is making a median income and the median income keeps dropping, do they have the capability to save the money for a down payment on a home? They don't. Exactly. And let's talk about the Memphis area. You've talked about it a lot. I mean, it's one of those areas where the income is based upon a wage income there. The, yeah, like you said, you know, and, and you've been here before and you, you've seen what's going on here. Memphis is very uh, blue collar. It's, uh, you know, it's 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 industry, factory, shipping driven. You know, the what average income somewhere in the 40 grand range. Exactly. So $40,000. So making a little bit above what the median income is, um, at least what was described for the nationally. So they're doing fairly well there. But cost of living is still so extreme. Do they have the capability to save enough money nowadays for those down payments? We're required to have a little bit higher down. It's not like it was you know, before. I think that there was that push in the early 2000s, late 90s to everybody needs to live the American dream. Everybody needs a home. And I get that. I understand the whole point behind it. But also the application, we can see how that worked out to try and loosen everything up, give people the zero down some loans. And sometimes not only do they finance the entire uh, purchase, but then they'll also throw in the closing costs for them. So there wasn't a whole lot going into it. And we see what happened to the market, the entire economy globally, partially because of that, because of trying to create that product that just didn't work out. So we see what that happened there. So because of that, I don't see that coming back anytime soon. So when they ask me, you know, why wouldn't locals just buy it? I'm sure locals would love to buy it. But because of the nature of the situation, the nature of the global economy, the nature of what it costs to, to exist nowadays, 
They just don't have the capital to be able to save up because they need that just to live to be able to put down on a home. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it, it's it's kind of like that Memphis statistic that kind of falls in line with that. I mean, I think the last time we checked, it's it's close to 50% of the local population here rent as opposed to home, home ownership. And it's really for a lot of those reasons you just said, you know, a lot of these people got hurt in the crash and a lot of these people uh, kind of make that income uh, range that you're talking about where they're not able to save up enough. So uh, coupled with a, a not that great credit score and you know, just making enough to kind of live month to month. Uh, that's why there's such a high percentage of renters to homeowners here. And I think that's one of the reasons that's made uh, Memphis a, a, a place where investors all over the country are buying here uh, because of, uh, I think that statistic is very important. And that's one of the reasons why people are investing here. Well, then also look at the service that's provided by an operation like what you guys have. You know, an individual that would buy a home and be able to scrape together the cash in one of those type of scenarios we just discussed to buy one of these homes, do they have the capability to put the, the, the work into it, to keep it up, to do a lot of this remodel you guys do and really clean that home up and make it such a, a nicer place to live? I, I don't see that happening very easily. And so not only is the person being able to, to get into a home that has a reasonable rent on it, but they're also getting to a very nice home compared to what they could have purchased. So when you think about that entire service, uh, the investor has a lot of potential out there to to bless a person's life out in the market. And you have a lot of people out in the market that they can they can offer that to. Absolutely, absolutely. So, man, Aaron, like like I say, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, you know, taking the time to talk with me today on some of these uh, important topics in regards to real estate and turnkey and, and the loan process and just kind of the overall mindset on, you know, alternative ways for people to really look at their investing strategy. Uh, do you have any uh, final words for the listeners? Really, it's it's do your upfront homework. Take the time, really dig into the individuals you're working with. Know that they're on your side. Do you trust that person as your chief operations officer? Do you trust that person as your chief financial officer? Are they giving you advice for you? Do I, the way Kurt and I work together uh, and the way I work together with most of the people I do turnkey real estate with, on them on the operations side, of course, is we focus so much on your the investor's business that we don't have to worry about ours. If I pour my energy into the investors who put that trust in me, my business is taken care of. I don't need to worry about managing mine that much. I've got a really great team here that does their job, and they do a very good job. We've vetted them out. And so that's their, that's the financial team for the investor. We've got the team here for you that you don't have to stress about that side. We'll get it done. Let us help you stress about your business. If somebody out there wants to get in touch with you, Aaron, uh, give us your contact information. Well, it's uh, Aaron Chapman. Um, and with Security National Mortgage Company, my NMLS ID number is 267844. You can look me up on the NMLS. Again, 267844. Um, you can also go to my website, which is AaronBChapman.com. And that's probably going to be the best way to get in touch with me is AaronBChapman.com. Well, listen, Aaron, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you've you've given us a lot of things to think about. And, uh, you know, we look forward to doing more interviews and more business with you in the future. Much appreciated, Kurt. I always appreciate the trust. Well, that's going to conclude this episode of Investor Talk Radio. And again, I'm your host, Kurt Davis. Until next time, we'll see you then. 
This show was produced by Kurt Davis and KurtDavisOnline.com. All rights reserved. To reach Kurt Davis, you can find him on the web at www.KurtDavisOnline.com or email him at Kurt at KurtDavisOnline.com. Everything you heard on this show should not be taken as personal or professional advice. You should conduct your own due diligence. Opinions or comments of our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Kurt Davis or KurtDavisOnline.com. 